And, uh, you know, some, of the, some meals that we have in our lives are these really, um, you know, touching and deep experiences. Maybe it's a meal with family. <clears throat> maybe it's a, a meal you've had with your spouse or maybe a, a girlfriend or boyfriend. Um, <clears throat> you know, other meals are uh, a little bit more utilitarian. <clears throat> um, sometimes meals are awkward. And I, you can just think very quickly, if you go back into movie history, you can think about awkward meals in, in movies. You can think about the nutty professor t- dinner table scene. I don't know if you guys remember that with Eddie Murphy. <coughs> Hercules. Anyway, um, <coughs> there's the meet the parents, awkward dinner table scene. Not sure if you guys remember that, where um, <coughs> they ask Ben Stiller, who's Jewish, uh, to pray. And so he offers up his best attempt at a Christian prayer. <coughs> there's the Talladega Nights dinner table scene. <coughs> I've never actually seen Talladega Nights, uh, but I have seen clips of that little dinner table scene. And it seems to be quite humorous. Anyway. Uh, When I was a kid, when my sister and I were little, we had a great aunt whose name was Mimi, and uh, we used to giggle like crazy when we would eat dinner with her and sort of the extended family, because one, she sounded like Aunt B um, from Andy Griffith, if you're familiar with uh, Andy Griffith, but she would always say these things were just utterly outlandish. And my sister, who has never uh, been very subtle in terms of sort of holding back anything that's inside her, used to just be merciless at the table. Like I remember one time we were sitting at my grandmother's house, and Mimi was there, and Mimi had made some comment like, when I rub my joints, it makes me belch. And uh, true is a true story. She's like 90 at the time. And so for the rest of the dinner, Christy, my sister, sitting at the other table, and she would go like this, just kind of look at me and kind of rub her joints a little bit. Anyway, (laughs) so today, actually, we're going to be looking at a meal with Jesus that is awkward, right? In fact, it goes from tense to intense. And uh, so before we jump into that in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a little opening illustration, a little clip, but let's go ahead and pray. Father, thanks for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, in Scripture we see you um, as we look at your son, Jesus, and so we see uh, the courage that he displayed and the strength that he displayed, but we also see the gentleness and the kindness that he displayed. And so, Father, I pray today that we would see both of those not only uh, in Jesus, but also in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It just looped. So, I don't know, the, the audio is bad, sorry, it's the only clip I could find. <clears throat> but, you know, the key line in that little interaction <clears throat> is that you've got this spokesman for the king who's coming out to the middle of the battlefield, and then you've got the Sp- Scottish nobles who are going out to the middle of the battlefield, and they're going to discuss terms, and essentially the terms are for the Scottish people to surrender. Well, of course, William Wallace, who hasn't been invited out to discuss the terms, <clears throat> begins to make his way out there, and he's, he's riding past his buddies. They go, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to pick a fight. <clears throat> and that's exactly what he's going to do. He is going to pick a fight uh, with the British because they have been um, intimidating and they've been oppressing the Scottish people. So here in Luke chapter 14, what we've got is we've got this image of Jesus. And what's really interesting about this image of Jesus is we're, we're well into uh, the book of Luke here. We've made our way a long way into this story. <clears throat> and if you guys know much about scripture, one of the things that you know is that Jesus was constantly at odds with the Pharisees because these are these guys who are supposed to be using their influence and their power in order to care for the people and lead the people and guide the people. But instead, they use their power for their own uh, benefit and for their own good. And so in Luke chapter 14, what we see is that Jesus is invited to this meal at a Pharisee's house. And what's interesting about Jesus being invited to the meal at the Pharisee's house is they're already out to get him. And Jesus knows they're out to get him. And so you watch, sort of read this section, and you're like, what are you doing, Jesus? And what he's going to do is he's going to pick a fight. 
right? And like the clip we used on, about Braveheart just a minute ago, what William Wallace was going to do is he was going to fight for the freedom of the Scots, and in the same way, Jesus is going to fight for the freedom of his people. Now, in Luke chapter 14, there's actually four different segments. We're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. But the three other segments are interesting. One, he tells the Pharisees that they are arrogant and that they should humble themselves, or if they didn't humble themselves, God was going to do it for them, right? Like just right at them, right? And he was not subtle at all. Then he tells the guy that invited him to this dinner, this party, to quit inviting people who can do you favors and instead to start inviting the lame and the poor, right? So again, he's very direct in both of those two things. And then the final piece He tells a story about a man who threw this big banquet and invited all these different people. And the people that he invited were the rich and the powerful and all these people. And they all said, yes, we'll come to the dinner. But when the day of the banquet came along, all of those people made excuses about why they couldn't come to the dinner. And so the man who threw this feast said, go out into the lanes and compel the blind and the lame and the poor to come to the party, right? And part of what he's doing there, part of what Jesus is doing is he's saying, To the Pharisees, he's saying, you're like the people who've been invited to the party, but you decide not to come at the last minute. And as a result, all these other people are going to be invited in. And part of what Jesus goes on to say is, if you refuse to enter into the banquet, then you won't be able to get in at all. So all of these little narratives point to the fact that Jesus is there to pick a fight. Now we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Now this is the very first section of these uh, four different narratives And it's about um, a man who is there at this dinner who definitely needs Jesus' help. So let's jump into Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So it's the Sabbath. Jesus has already been healing on the Sabbath, drawing the ire of the Pharisees. He'd been warning the disciples and also those other people who were following him about the Pharisees, and he'd called them hypocrites. And uh, we, we understand intuitively now what a hypocrite is, but back then, a hypocrite was actually a Greek word for an actor. And what Jesus was basically saying is they're acting spiritual, but they're really frauds. They're fakes. And now here's Jesus on the Sabbath in the home of a leading Pharisee, and we're told that they are watching him like a hawk. And it's here as in so many other places where Jesus in these stories, again, reminds me anyway of William Wallace, where he is going to pick a fight. Look at verse two. Verse two says this, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So behold, there's a man before him who had dropsy. So behold, it's a Greek word that's used any number of different times. Anytime where you see it, you know, it says lo or behold. And so here, lo and behold, at this dinner party for all these rich wealthy, powerful religious people is a man with dropsy. And dropsy is this disease where fluids gather in the cavities of the body and cause great pain and tons of very, uh, you know, miserable swelling. And so it's very unsightly and it's very painful. Typically, dropsy was a sign of heart failure, which eventually ultimately led to suffocation. So this guy was in bad shape. Patients would often have to sit up to be able to breathe at all. And the common treatment was to lance the body in the hopes of draining the accumulating liquid. Otherwise, this was known as bloodletting. So this man was suffering, he was dying, and the suffering man's presence there at this dinner with rich and powerful and influential people was almost definitely not a coincidence, but rather he was being used 
by the Pharisees to entrap or to try to entrap Jesus. How do you think that made Jesus feel? Verse 3. Verse 3 said this, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and to the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal, heal on the Sabbath or not? The Mosaic law did not prohibit healing on the Sabbath, but certain Pharisaical traditions did. They did say that it was wrong, that it was a sin. Jesus would have known this, and they would have known this, right? And so he responds to their attempt to trap him with a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So he flips it, and he puts them in a tough spot. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, but they remained silent, but they remained silent. Now, interestingly here, technically, but they remained silent, can be translated, that word there for silent can uh, be translated at rest, but they remained at rest, like the, uh, the defense rests its case. The word translated silent can literally mean to rest or to cease from labor, and this may have been intentional sort of double entendre on Luke's part, to hear all these religious people at rest while this man with dropsy suffers in front of them. See the picture? Though they're willing to work really hard to try to trap Jesus on the Sabbath, they're unwilling to lift a finger to ease this man's suffering. So how would Jesus respond? What would he do? Second half of verse 4 says this, and I think this verse is a little bit like Jesus wept, actually. Then he, that is Jesus, took him and healed him and sent him away. Took him, healed him, and sent him away. We're going to actually come back to that verse in just a moment. Verse 5, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? It's a guarantee that if one of their sons had fallen into a pit, they would have thought, they wouldn't have thought twice about rescuing their son. It's guaranteed that if one of their livestock had fallen into a well, they would immediately have started to try to rescue that animal from a pit They wouldn't have hesitated to rescue their son or livestock. But again, here they sit at rest while this man suffers. Verse 6 says this, and it says this. They say, it says, and they could not reply to these things. And they could not reply to these things. Kind of interesting verbiage there. These were high-level religious leaders, right? They taught for a living. They were accompanied by scribes or lawyers who were essentially these people who specialized in what the Bible taught, how could they not answer Jesus? The word the ESV translates could not is derived from the word for strength. So they were not able or were not strong enough to respond to these things. Jesus uses his strength to heal the suffering man. Jesus uses his strength to courageously engage with these men who will eventually kill him. And in response, they don't even have enough strength to utter a word. So what do we do with this story? It's just a little story. What do we do with it? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves whether or not we see ourselves in this story. Who are we in this story? Are we a Pharisee? Are we the man with the dropsy? Are we Jesus? Very quickly, let's look at the Pharisees. <clears throat> let's look at them. They were not curious about Jesus. Uh, they were just out to get him, right? He had done all these miracles, right? They were doing amazing things, but he happened to threaten their position and their power. And so instead of being curious about him and following him, they were just out to get him. They kept silent when they should have spoken. They used the man with dropsy for their own purposes instead of seeking to help him. They trusted in their own ideas 
uh, of being, uh, instead of being obedient to Scripture. They remained at rest while this man suffered. They refused to use their power for others, but instead they used their power to preserve their positions. They were more concerned with what their peers thought about them than what Jesus thought about them. And then finally, they should have responded in this situation with worship and by listening to Jesus after a miracle, but instead they continued to fight against him. And I hate to tell you this, but most of us have more in common with the Pharisees than we'd like to admit, or at least I do. We remain silent when we should speak. We rest when we should offer help. We should respond to God in worship, but instead we remain at odds with him. We keep him distant. We are way more like the Pharisees than we would like to admit. Let's look at the man with dropsy. <clears throat> Here's this man with this horrible disease, uh, immense suffering. He's, he's actually unclean, so he's unable to enter the temple to even worship. So he's at a distance from God. He's in pain. He would have been in terrible physical pain and terrible physical suffering. He would have been miserable. He's surely in emotional pain. The physical pain would have almost definitely been accompanied by hopelessness, depression, loneliness, and despair. He's dying. His heart is failing. He knows his need, and he is 100% unable to save himself. So we're like the Pharisees, but we're also like this man with dropsy, more like him than we know. Like the man with dropsy, our hearts are failing and we're in desperate need. And unless someone steps in, we will surely die. Pharisees, this man with dropsy, let's look at Jesus. Here we see Jesus surrounded by his enemies yet again. Those who are out to get him, those who will eventually use their power to have him arrested and crucified, they're just looking for a reason to crush him. They've set a trap for him. And Jesus willingly, knowingly, courageously, calmly, and intentionally steps forward into the middle of their trap. We're told that Jesus does three things in particular as he steps in, especially to this man, to deal with the man with dropsy. It says this. It says, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. You can read that really quickly. You can kind of miss it. Let's look at that first uh, section where it says Jesus took him. Technically, the NIV, if any of you guys have an NIV Bible, it says the NIV, it says taking hold of the man. And that Greek word there almost means to, it actually is a metaphor, can be used as a metaphor to rescue someone. But it's this idea of throwing your arms around someone and, and, and holding them and, and, and grasping them, taking hold of them. Almost like, you know, when a little, you know, two or three-year-old boy or girl hurts themselves and the mom runs over and she picks up the child in her arms and, and holds him or holds her. And so here's this picture of Jesus with this man who has this horrible disease. And Jesus goes over and doesn't just sort of touch him or put his hand on him, but Jesus takes hold of him, right? Takes hold of him. And then it says, and then Jesus healed him, or that can be translated, made him whole. And so Jesus takes this man who is suffering miserably with this horrible disease called dropsy, and Jesus not only takes hold of him, but he makes him whole. He brings him back to be who he was created to be, and then this, the last thing we see here is then it says Jesus sets him free, or it's translated sent him away, or looses the man. It's the same word that can be used to describe setting a slave free, or untying an animal. It's the same word that would have been used to acquit someone of a crime, or to free them of a debt. Jesus not only takes hold of this man, he makes him whole, and then he sets him free. 
That's my privilege today to tell you that if you are like this suffering man, hopeless and desperate and with a failing heart, that Jesus moves toward you with his arms outstretched to take hold of you, to make you whole and to set you free. That's what Jesus came to do. How many of you need to hear this today? How many of you need to see this picture of Jesus offering mercy and grace to the broken, but more particularly, how many of you need to see Jesus offering the same grace and mercy to you today? I know I do. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of Jesus who is a great picture of you, who courageously and with strength moves in in order to, to rescue us, in order to defend us. And at the same time, Father, this great picture of Jesus as he uses uh, tenderness and mercy and grace and gentleness in order to, to offer us rescue and healing and to set us free. So, Father, for those of us this morning who are more um, are very aware of our brokenness and our sin and our desperation, Father, I pray that we would, uh, that we would call out to you and that we would see your son reaching out to us in order to offer us healing, in order to set us free. Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, today that we pray these things. Amen.